humility, curiosity, transparency, vulnerability. Perhaps these aren't the first words you think of when you think of leadership, but these are key for leaders of the future. On this episode, Edgar Schein and Peter Schein show us how to start down the path of humble leadership. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 363. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. One of the key words that has been coming up in the work of our guest today is the word humble. How do we as leaders embrace the word humble of looking for ways that we can have more humility in our work and not only utilize that humbleness to be more helpful to others and in our own careers, but also to be of great benefit to our organizations. And today's guests are some of the top thinkers on organizations and helping organizations and people to be successful in their careers. I am thrilled to welcome Edgar Schein and Peter Schein to the show today. Ed Schein is Professor Emeritus of MIT's Sloan School of Management. He is the most prolific thinker and writer in the field of organizational development that I know of. Through the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute, he consults with various local and international organizations with special emphasis on safety and quality in healthcare, the nuclear energy industry, and even in the U.S. Forest Service. He is the recipient of the Distinguished Scholar Practitioner Award of the Academy of Management and Lifetime Achievement Awards from the International Leadership Association and the International OD Network. He is also the author of many books and publications, including the new book, Humble Leadership, which he's here today to share with us. And he's joined by his son and the co-author of Humble Leadership, Peter Schein. Peter is the co-founder and COO of the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute. He provides consult to senior management on organizational development challenges facing private and public sector entities worldwide. And he has developed a deep experience base and passion for internet infrastructure as the web era dawned in the mid-1990s. And he served organizations like Apple, Pacific Bell, Silicon Graphics, Sun Microsystems, and many others. And he is also the co-author of Humble Leadership. I'm so glad to welcome you both to Coaching for Leaders. Thank you. Thank glad you. to be here. It's a pleasure. The word that comes up for me in so much of looking at your recent work, gentlemen, is the word humble. And I was wondering if maybe we could start there because I'd love to know what you mean when you think about and are talking about the word humble. Well, leadership, the concept is to, to do something new and better, to improve situations, to fix things, to enlarge our ideas. And I've discovered in the last 10, 20, 30 years that the problems that leaders face are increasingly becoming more complicated, more complex, and the person in the leadership position who is now supposed to invent something new and better simply doesn't have enough knowledge, information, and in a way, 
grit to just go ahead and produce an answer just because that's expected of them. So at that moment, that leader has to become humble, not with respect to other people, not with respect to subordinates or bosses or peers, but with respect to the problem that he or she is trying to solve. The ability to say, I don't know the answer, I need help. I need help from my peers and subordinates and often from my boss. That's the here and now humility that I think is increasingly the characteristic of of all leadership positions. We just don't know enough as individuals. We've been asked on numerous occasions, and once in particular from a, um, with an Asian audience, what our sense of humble or humility might have to do with the Confucian sense of humble or humility. And I think, honestly, our response was, wow, that's a really hard question. And honestly, I, I, I for one, don't have enough of a sense of what the Confucian or any sort of Asian spiritual sense of humility is. For that matter, I couldn't really comment on what a Christian sense of humility is. And we've we've tried to be cr- pretty clear that what we're talking about is something that is humility in the kind of in the here and now more than in some broader spiritual sense. It's not to say that that broader spiritual sense isn't very relevant, but we're talking about something that is every day at work, in groups, with teams, with bosses and employees. It's a, it's a much different framing for the idea of, of humble. Another word that came up for me as I read through the Humble Leadership book is the word personized. And that's not the word personalized, as you point out in the book. It's, it's, it's a different word. What does that mean? Okay. To understand that word, we have to introduce the other important idea in the book that everyone agrees that leadership is a relationship with others potential followers, actual followers. And what we've discovered is if you go through the entire leadership literature, you find most people agreeing that it's a relationship, but not specifying what they mean by that word or what depth of relationship they're really talking about. Because you can have a very superficial relationship or you can have a very deep relationship. So in the book, we talk about four levels that are really socially sanctioned. You can be very dominating, which is level minus one, or you can be very bureaucratic, hierarchic, which is the relationship we have with with most of our transactions, uh, with our helpers, with salespeople, and so on, where we each play our role. And society teaches us how to do that, how to be a customer, how to be a helper, and so on. And we've discovered that most of the management literature takes that level one for granted as the best and correct way, get the job description, put the person in it, make it so clear that you can rotate different people in it, bosses change all the time. 
So we learn in that level one how to deal with each other transactionally. And in this new world, we've discovered that also not only makes it hard to solve problems, but it elicits competition, it elicits cheating, it elicits withholding information. In a totally role-based system, there is no great incentive to tell the boss the truth when it might not be in your own interest or the boss might yell at you or something. So we want leadership to move to level two, which basically means leaders and the potential followers, their peers, their own bosses need to get to know each other. And that getting to know each other means develop enough openness that you can trust each other, that you will not lie to each other. And to get to that state, we're saying to get to that personal knowledge, that process we're calling personize. Getting to know each other in order to create openness and trust. And we decided to, you know, at the risk of coining more jargon, we decided to use that word in order to draw a contrast to the other words like personalize, customize, bespoke. All of those are very relevant, particularly in, in sort of the way we market and consume products these days. And even in the HR world, there's so lots of talk about the complex HR stack that allows you to personalize a benefit and compensation program mm. to every employee. That's great. The point about personize is that it's, it's creating a person-to-person, -person, a whole person-to-whole person connection that's a little bit different than just personalizing a benefit pack for employee XYZ. It's a human-to-human -human connection that's much different than a transactional connection. I suspect that a lot of the people in our audience have, if not attempted to do that, at least had the inclination to try to create those personalized moments and interactions and relationships. And a piece of that, I imagine, is the willingness to be vulnerable. Because as you point out, both of you have pointed this out, that in our organizations, in many organizations, the level one kind of transactional relationships are, are the common way we approach most, uh, most management questions. And so I, I am curious about vulnerability and, and how you both have seen this play out. And I, I think there's some people who are scared of vulnerability because they're scared that their organization doesn't do that well, or it's not accepting their organization. But I also think sometimes leaders don't really have a sense of what vulnerability is. And I'm wondering if that comes up in your work when you're working with leaders. The, the word is unfortunately very powerful, negative sounding, because vulnerability implies somehow that I now have less power people can now do things to me. And I think it's better to think of, of it not in the power sense, but in the information sense, that I'm always vulnerable to my ignorance. 
the things I don't know is what can hurt me. So I'm thinking out loud now, I like the idea of perpetual vulnerability in a complex world where if, we, if we're not alert, if we don't know how to read the room, if we don't know how to observe, vulnerability is a general human condition, not a particular problem of a leader. So the, the leader just has to acknowledge that as a human being, uh, he or she has particular areas of ignorance where personizing has to be done to get information, and I mean true information, because in, in level one, you may ask your subordinate for information, but the subordinate may not have any inclination to tell you the truth. We see this in the safety area all the time. Subordinates lie rather than upset the boss. So vulnerability to me is, is ignorance. It's probably healthier to embrace that vulnerability than resort to or, or sort of end up feeling cynical or skeptical. Embrace the vulnerability that you don't know the answers, all the answers, and that there's a lot more information in the teams that, that work in your organization that may naturally flow up to you, even though you would like to have that information. But r- rather than being you know, dubious or skeptical or cynical about what inform- information is being concealed, embrace the vulnerability that you don't know. And also, I would say, to add another kind of trending word is curiosity. Mm. You can couple that basic acceptance that you are vulnerable every day you go to work because there's a lot you don't know. Doesn't matter whether you're the heroic leader or the you know the the employee of you know in their first week of work. If you can couple that philosophy every day at work with a genuine curiosity for what's going on in all corners of the organization, then you end up at ending that day with more information than you would have if you were just dubious and cynical. Oh, indeed. And easy to say and hard to do, right? So many times when I've worked with people and just hearing from our audience, especially new managers, new leaders, there's the assumption so many of us have. I know I had when I came into a leadership situation the first time is I really need to have the answers. People are looking to me for answers. And as you've both articulated, the world has really changed on this. There's no way, even if you had that that worldview, that you could have all the answers and the, and the complexity that we're all dealing with. And so I am curious, as you've worked and consulted, of the leaders and maybe even the organizations where you've seen uh, people be able to embrace the vulnerability a bit, to have that natural curiosity, what did they do? to lean into that? Well, there's a a good example in our book of a man who took over being the executive vice president of a very large global organization, which included seven or eight divisions that were working on different technologies, and how he approached, you know, suddenly being over all of them, 
he went to visit each of them and spent, I think he said, a whole week getting to know the management of that particular unit, which itself was a big global organization, and acknowledged that they knew their own technology better than he ever would, but that he was really curious how their their organization worked, and that he not only was open to hearing what problems they were having, but in a genuine way, he didn't say, okay, and how are you going to solve it? He said, I'm really curious how you're thinking about this and if I can be of any help to you. He, he created in each of these major organizations, being himself, you know, on top of the whole thing, a relationship with these six different units and spoke in a way that made them feel he really was curious and they really could talk openly about their problems and even share their solutions if they had ideas, because he was really interested in it. It's being curious and then listening carefully and showing interest, I think, that is the key. So part of it is just being able to, as a leader, make the decision to have that vulnerability and to be curious. And then, as you point out, going out and take the action to actually spend the time asking the questions and take the time to listen versus taking the time to try to, you know, start with the vision or whatever else may happen. I think the ability to listen when your peers or subordinates or direct reports are talking to you is probably one of the most important ways you personize to let them know that you're really hearing them. Mm. We are, after all, as leaders, navigating relationships with human beings. This is not a on and off switch. It is There is complexity here that is continuing to get more complex as time goes on in most organizations. And the call I'm hearing from you is, let's, as, as leaders, be thinking about that and push forward into that 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 zone of maybe discomfort and vulnerability for us to have done some thinking about that complexity in advance, you know, in alignment with also the metrics that the organization may be looking at. Complexity in how we do things, how we ask questions, how we listen, how we respond. Personizing says all of those processes have to become less bureaucratic, less transactional, and more personal. We have to learn to actually hear each other. We have to learn how to say things to each other that the other party can hear and can question. The whole process of interpersonal and group relations becomes central to how you deal with these complex problems. One of the examples and the messages that you feature in your work really just hit me as as so profound. And I see this so often when talking with folks in our audience and our academy is the point you make that a lot of times, you know, leaders who who have started to develop this skill of of building the humble leadership and have developed into growing level two relationships with their direct reports find themselves in situations where the rest of the organization has not moved that way. And in particular, 
the senior managers, their own relationships with their managers tend to be more of those transactional relationships. And they find themselves in this very awkward situation where they, they have these wonderful level two relationships with their team and yet do not have that relationship with senior leadership. And I'm wondering, do you have advice for those who are in that situation of how to navigate that? Well, the, the obvious answer, I don't understand why as people become more senior, they only look up rather than down. I don't see any reason why every division manager, every vice president doesn't feel obligated to have level two personal relationships with each of his or her subordinates. We somehow forget that our own behavior vis-a-vis our direct reports is the most powerful signal we have that we believe in a certain way of doing things. We announce it, we may do it with our peers, we get it with our boss, and then we leave our subordinates alone and wonder why this doesn't cascade down through the organizations. It means they haven't figured out how to monitor, how to display this behavior to their direct reports. It's right there in that relationship where I think people screw up. They say it, but they don't do it. And there's that dilemma maybe faced every day of what's going to be a better ROI for me to be managing up, thinking about, you know, the senior levels of the organization above me or thinking or managing down, trying to get the most out of my team. And, you know, it's not clear that, that we've aligned our incentive systems or our value systems to that goal of getting the most out of my team. Many of our incentive systems and value systems are still around the heroic climber. Make your own numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's the don't bring me a problem, bring me a solution. That's a managing up concept. Mm-hmm. And I think we're, part of what we're trying to do in this book is just, you know, honestly call that into question. Call into question the heroic leader myth of somebody who's from their own brilliance and perseverance, you know, navigates their way to the top. I appreciate the complexity of your, and the real, the the reality of your response of the, the difficulty in this. There is so much difficulty here and as much progress as we've made in the recent decades on leadership in so many ways, there is so much work still to do. And I love the point you make in the book that once you have developed into a level two leader, you don't go back. And so that that creates some challenges if you're working in an organization that does not have that same view. Exactly. We're, we're not there as a society. We can only find examples in segments of organizations and segments of industries. But, you know, we, the other thing we say in the book, at, at maybe at a couple points, is that we, we quote Frederick Lalu commenting that something is in the air. We've taken a particular tack in, in writing this book, but there's a lot of people out there who are saying similar things in different ways. And so there is something going on. There is something in the air where people are starting to challenge 
in the same way we did in this book, are starting to challenge some of these basic leadership myths and, and you know, management philosophies. It's, there is something in the air. Mm, indeed. Indeed, there is. And I'm curious, um, we talk about failure a lot on this show because uh, leaders, of course, if they're learning and growing, are failing or running into obstacles. And I'm curious, as you have worked in your career and, and been doing this work and doing this writing, where have you had obstacles? Where has failure been a teacher for you? I mean, many times, <laughs> but I, I think if there's a theme to it, it probably is to that point for myself that I didn't take the time to step back and reflect and think about, you know, what's, what's the right way to respond to this challenge? So often it was easy to sort of say, oh, uh, okay, I know what I need to do. And that short, quick answer probably wasn't the right way to go because it ended up in an outcome that, you know, I didn't have the option to change my behavior a month later because I was no longer employed. <laughs> and I think also a lot of it is, is asking that question, what's really going on? There's the proximate problem and the real problem. There's the, the known unknown and the unknown unknown. We have to continually ask ourselves, about the the proximate problem and the you know the underlying problem. So for me in some of those challenging situations, did I take the time to reflect on the underlying issue and try to sort of adjust what I was doing to reflect that? Because if nothing else, I was going to feel truer to myself in doing that than just responding to high pace and short term to what I thought my manager or the CEO of the company was telling me to do. There certainly is a bias in a lot of our organizations and certainly our North American culture and society of, if you're not doing something, you're not working. <laughs> and yet, you said the word reflection several times, Peter, that challenge for us to step back and to be comfortable of taking time to reflect can often be the difference maker. I would want to add that reflection is increasingly having to become an, an interpersonal group process. It's all well and good for the individual to reflect, but remember again, we're vulnerable to our own ignorance. And where we've seen, for example, in the safety area and in the forest service particularly, that the solutions to problems often lie in the group that's working and talking to each other because nobody has the answer, but the answer comes out of group sense making. And I see the future being more and more, particularly in, in the younger generations and a lot of the, uh, the software engineering that I see they are more comfortable working in groups and solving problems as groups, which is another, I think, very hopeful trend that there is in the next generations some, some different insights into how work can and should be done than our traditional management culture has put up there as the model. Well, thank you both for this. Ed, I have a final question for you specifically, but before I ask that, I'd love to share some of the resources that we have available 
for folks. If this conversation has sparked some curiosity for you and the desire to do some reflection, either as as an individual or as Ed was just mentioned, as your organization, Humble Leadership is the book. I certainly would recommend taking a look in order to challenge yourself on some of the things we've been talking about here today. Also, Peter, Ed, you have a wonderful landing page on the internet that is helpful for resources for folks. Peter, would you mind sharing some of what's online for people who want to explore more? Sure. Uh, and it's the website is OCLI, the acronym for the Organizational Culture and Leadership Institute. OCLI.org. And that's just sort of our author presence on the internet, at least for the time being. So there's a page that lists a bunch of Ed's important publications over the last four years. And there's some videos of of Ed talking about um, culture and talking about leadership. That's, uh, it's a good place to start anyway. Fabulous. I, I enjoyed the videos. I uh, enjoyed the talk uh, that Ed did at Google. It's really, really fascinating. So for those who are looking for more, it's a great starting point. Ed, I mentioned I have a final question for you. I happened to notice in my research that you recently had your 90th birthday, and you have been probably one of the most prolific thinkers, as I mentioned in the introduction, in the organizational development space of anyone on the planet. I am curious, what keeps you motivated to keep doing this work? As I look back over my career, I was puzzling why did I study uh, groups first and then careers, and then I studied organizational brainwashing, uh, how, how people learn organizational values. And I noticed that what really created the new area was discovering as I looked around that there were still big either unexplored areas or the way people had said what was to be known in leadership or about culture, about careers, didn't satisfy me. And I have alternate perspectives or new ways of thinking about it. And I find I get excited by these new ways of thinking. So uh, as long as the brain keeps generating you know, they've got it all wrong. I'm going to tell them what's really going on here. As long <laughs> as I keep generating thoughts like that, I'll keep writing. And if 90-year-olds don't get to do that, then I don't know who does. Right? <clears throat> indeed, indeed. Well, both of you, thank you so much for your work. Ed, thank you for your leadership in this space for several decades. Peter, thank you so much for your practical wisdom. I'm grateful to both of you. And really the permission you give for leaders to both think in new ways and at the same time to recognize and understand the complexity of the world we live in and the curiosity, the challenge, the curiosity to ask some great questions. Thank you for the chance to talk about it. Yeah, it's great. Very insightful questions and a great discussion.
If this conversation was useful to you, several other episodes that will also be of value. Episode 238, a while ago, I recorded with Adam Grant on how to be a nonconformist. We talked about Adam's work in one of his most recent books, Originals, in that episode. The reason I'm thinking of Adam Grant, not only from that conversation, but also his other very popular book, Give and Take. If you are looking for a model that will help you to frame being the kind of person that we talked about in this conversation, a person of humility, a person of curiosity. I think Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, is a wonderful place to start. And episode 238 will get you uh, even more in tune with some of Adam's research and thinking. I also would recommend episode 241, Turn Followers into Leaders. David Marquet was on that episode. I'm thinking about him because not only is he a wonderful example of humble leadership, but also he's profiled heavily in the book, Humble Leadership, that Ed and Peter have written here. And uh, David is just masterful at the language that he uses in leadership. He is just brilliant at teaching leaders how to use great language in order to have the kind of leadership we've talked about here today. Again, that's episode 241. I'd also recommend episode 271, How to Increase Your Conversational Intelligence. Judith Glazer was my guest on that episode. We talked about the different levels of conversation. And you'll recall from this conversation today, we talked about some of the different levels of relationships, level one, level two. There's also level three talked about in the Humble Leadership book. And I think the model from Judith Glazer uh, is a great compliment to engaging in the kind of conversation that we all want to in order in order to personalize the relationships and the interactions as we talked about today. So again, that's episode 271. And then finally, I'd recommend also episode 334, How to Be a Happier Person. My guest on that episode was Neil Pazrika. Neil talked about his work on happiness. And one of the words that Neil featured in that conversation was the word ikigai. It's a Japanese word that is roughly translated to mean having a purpose in life. And I just, I can't help but notice we've now had two guests on this podcast who are over the age of 90 this year, Ed Shine, one of them, Edith Eager, the other, the Holocaust survivor who was on earlier this year. And I just can't help but notice how both of them have such a clear purpose for what they are up to in their lives. And Neil Pazrika talked about that and how that is such an important indicator for a long and healthy life. I realize two people does not necessarily make a research study or a trend, yet just pointing it out since I'm noticing it. Hey, I hope that those past episodes are of value to you. If you'd like to dig in on a lot more, I hope you'll activate your free Coaching for Leaders membership. It's going to give you access to all those past episodes, plus access to the entire library of shows we've aired since 2011 with all the expert interviews searchable by topic. In addition, you'll get access to my weekly leadership guide, our free 10-day audio course, 
my entire library, the member cast, and a bunch more online. If you will give me just a few days, the free audio course is titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, I'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. You can join right now and get access to all of that by going over to coachingforleaders.com and activating your free membership. Next week, I am glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show. We are going to be handling Q&A from you, our listeners. So if you have a question you would like to submit to us for consideration, maybe today's conversation generated some thinking for you, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, submit your question for consideration for the upcoming Q&A episode or the first Monday of every month we do a Q&A episode. Hey, thank you also so much to Latterick and also to Tony Glockler for the kind reviews you left on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to you both. Hey, if you'd like to leave a rating or review, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash Apple if you use the Apple platform. And if you're an Overcast user and this episode was helpful, hit the star button on the app to help recommend it to other Overcast users. Thank you if you do either. See you next week for our monthly Q&A show. Have a great day. Take care.